This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 126, Burial. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Something that is buried is assumed to be gone forever or of no more relevance. Jesus teaches us to think of it in a more nuanced way. It's not just about what was, it's about what will come afterward and what we will do with what remains. This week we will discuss Israel's baptism in the Red Sea and the implications it carries for us, the furor over the true location of Daniel Boone's remains, a six-foot piece of property with my name on it, and how a seed must die so that my hopes of winning the game might live. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Read with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting verse number 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Going through verse number 12 there. Israel died in the Red Sea, spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking. They invested themselves fully in the things of Moses. They didn't know very much. Most of them, it appears, didn't know very much about this Yahweh God that Moses was emphasizing, but they trusted Moses enough. As we see in Exodus chapter 14 at the bank of the Red Sea in verses 13 and following, but Moses said to the people, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army through the chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. God clearly is setting this up so that Moses is his mouthpiece, that they see God through Moses. And by instilling in them a relationship with Moses, they are, at least in theory, establishing a relationship with the Heavenly Father himself. You are for practical purposes dead. You have drowned in the Red Sea. And you are trusting that Moses is going to get you out. That's what baptism is, essentially. When we go down into the water, someone helps us down into the water. We trust that they're going to bring us back out. You're committed to this. You believe that you will come out the other side. And what's more, you'll come out the other side, a changed individual. And that relationship you have with the person who taught you the gospel, the one who baptized you into Christ, is a permanent thing. And hopefully, at least, it will remain forever and even intensify as you grow in your faith. That's the way that it should have worked with Moses. And to a certain degree, at least, it did. We read at the end of the Moses story in Deuteronomy chapter 34 that this bond that Moses had formed with the people would last forever. 
But if you were to tell that story to Moses in the wilderness, he might laugh at you. He might very well say, I don't see evidence of this ongoing relationship. I see a lot of whining. I see a lot of complaining. I see a lot of backbiting. I see a lot of rebellion. And that's the story of the book of Numbers, especially to a certain degree, even in the book of Exodus in the earlier days. These people refused to submit to Moses. They were, in theory at least, baptized into Moses, but they did not stay baptized. What we need to do as the people of God, as we look to 1 Corinthians 10 as an example for us, as we think about being baptized into Jesus, we need to remember to stay buried. Yes, there is a sense in which we are raised up to walk in newness of life. Romans chapter 6 tells us that. But there's also a sense in which we stay dead. Those things that we are escaping, that we are running away from, they don't come back to us. They leave us. And the relationship that we find in Jesus on the other end of baptism is life-defining and should forever cause us to form a relationship with Him that banishes any relationship that we have with any kind of sin or sin enterprise that we engage in or that we did engage in in times past. Those things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 says, including this, this connection that we should be forming. We should see our act of baptism as an opportunity to quit the old life. And then having been baptized, we continue to trust in the one who cleansed us. What a waste it would be if we were to simply die in the wilderness because we did not have enough faith to persevere in this new relationship. Let's not just die to the world. Let's stay dead to the world. Don't covet the things that we gave up back in Egypt. Let's stay true to God. Let's stay true to Jesus. Let's stay true to this mission that God has put us on. Garth Brooks had a hit song, we bury the hatchet, but leave the handle sticking out. That's not the kind of burial that we want with sin. We bury sin and we leave it in the ground. When we are buried with Jesus, we have a relationship that lasts forever. We do not retreat to these earlier, lesser things. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. I recently finished John McFerger's book on Daniel Boone, and I had always seen Boone as kind of a mythological sort of character. That's the way most hero stories from two and a half centuries ago are going to be by the very nature of things, I suppose. Boone was real, and a lot of the stories about Boone presumably are real. A lot of them appear to not be. But Boone is one of those characters who people want to attach themselves to. He stands for westward expansion. He stands for the advancement of civilization. He stands for Indians' rights. He stands for the expulsion of Indians. He stands for any number of things, depending on the preconceived notion of the person who is reading the story of Daniel Boone. That's the great thing about these old stories and the myths that surround the stories. You can basically remake the legend of Daniel Boone any way you like. Always, of course, with the idea of making Boone part of your own story, part of your own life, as it were. And no part of Daniel Boone's life is more like that than his burial. And it's really kind of tragic when you think about it. Daniel Boone is traditionally associated with Kentucky. Of course, he lived in Pennsylvania. He lived in Ohio. He lived in Virginia, North Carolina. He spent some time even as far south as Florida. But his story really is all about Kentucky. Kentucky is the state where everything is named after Daniel Boone. 
And for many years, he stayed there. And then he left. And he left with a bit of an attitude, actually. He thought he had been done wrong. The story is too long to tell here. He went to Missouri. And it was in Missouri, actually, that he died. And was buried in Missouri with his family. And a while later, folks showed up from Kentucky saying, hey, we would like to do something special with Daniel Boone's remains. And long story short, they took the remains of Daniel Boone and took them back to Kentucky and buried them in Frankfort, the capital of Kentucky. And there he stands, supposedly. Now, that's where the story gets really weird, because there are people who claim that he took the wrong body. There's even some experts who have chimed in with not a whole lot of evidence to back them up, by the way, according to Farragher. But they say it's not Daniel Boone's remains there. It was actually the wrong person they unearthed. There is this standing fight between Missouri and Kentucky. Where is Daniel Boone? It makes you wonder, why is it so important that you have a dead body? And really, it's the same thing that we were talking about before as far as appropriating Daniel Boone and making him part of your own story. The way that Boone's body is treated, whether it's Daniel Boone's body or not, brings up this question of exactly what our motivations are. What are we in this fight for? Ostensibly, people are wanting to honor the memory of Daniel Boone. They want to make a big deal about it. They want to celebrate him. The question immediately comes up, of course, why can't the Kentucky people celebrate Daniel Boone in Missouri? And the reason, of course, is they are taking him for their own purposes. And that's the way oftentimes it is with things in general, and it's the way it is with things of God. It seems like we let on like we are doing this for the greater glory. We're doing this for the greater good. But in reality, it's all about ourselves. I'll refer you to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 3, where Paul refers to such people as this. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abuse of language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men who have depraved minds and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. It goes on to talk about how we're supposed to be free from the love of money and focused on spiritual things. If we are really invested in spiritual things, if that's really what we are trying to honor, we need to understand the difference between honoring the cause, which is to say the gospel, and honoring our part in the cause. What makes us look good is not necessarily furthering the cause of Christ, and it's very easy for us to have torn loyalties with regard to such things. In fact, the rivals for the body of Boone remind me a little bit of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 that Jesus criticizes, especially verse 23 of that chapter. These ones who are meticulous about the nuance of the law, the attention to detail, but they are missing the broader point. If you really want to honor the memory of Daniel Boone, maybe what you ought to do is not dig him up and take him from here to there and appropriate him for your own purposes. A really twisted chapter to this is the manner in which this transport took place. If you think that it seems a little random to dig a body out of the ground that has a coffin that has been falling apart, essentially, and gather whatever looks like a human bone and put it in a bag and take it to another state and put it in another box and put it in another hole, if that seems kind of random, well, apparently it was. It's well reported that there were those who were picking up an ankle bone or picking up a rib. Instead of truly honoring this occasion, they saw this as an opportunity for personal gain. 
kind of like the collecting of holy relics that we saw in the history of the early church. If I can just have a piece of Jesus, if I can have a piece of the cross, if I can have a piece of this or that or the other, then that makes me part of the story. Well, it's not all about us. It's about Jesus. It's about his things, not our things. We are supposed to be giving of ourselves rather than taking for ourselves. We're described as a living sacrifice in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That should be our emphasis, finding a way to give to the Lord rather than a way to find a way to make serving God pay for us in the short term. Jesus came to the earth and went to the cross and went to the tomb ultimately for our benefit. Let's honor him and praise him for what he has done for us, rather than seeing this as an opportunity to gloat, an opportunity to exploit, an opportunity to vaunt ourselves. We had plenty of those opportunities before Jesus came along. Let's bury those old tendencies, those old vices, and pursue the things of Jesus. He died on the cross to allow us to make this transition. Let's make the transition. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. My dad grew up in Burnett County, Texas, just outside of Austin. I was raised in Austin, in Travis County. Now I live in Williamson County, just to the north of Austin. Same area. I found my way back home, you might say. If there's a strong north wind and a really good paper airplane, I might be able to hit Spicewood, Texas my dad's hometown. And in Spicewood, Texas, there in Burnett County, there is a piece of property, a little more than six feet long, that in every way but the most literal has my name on it. In Haney Flat Cemetery, an old traditional burial place in Spicewood that has now been completely consumed by Austin Sprawl, has only a certain amount of plots left. And when my grandmother passed many years ago, my grandfather decided that we were going to get our part in it. And he put up a stone for himself and his wife, and he put up another stone for my dad and his wife, and another stone for my aunt and her, her husband. And this is where we're going to be. And there were plots bought also for me and my brother and my sister. I may wind up being the very last person who's ever buried in Haney Flat Cemetery. I don't say all that to sound morbid. I don't mean to sound grotesque or convey some kind of sense of dread. Very much the opposite, actually. I find a certain amount of peace in the idea of returning to your roots. In the most immediate senses, uh, I like the idea of living where I used to live, living in a place that I used to know, seeing things change, seeing things stay the same. I find uh, a great deal of peace in that. And even more than that, the idea that after this life is over, this is where I'd be buried. Maybe it's a, an intentional play on words, but the idea of roots, which are obviously are also buried underground, the idea of, of having roots, having a connection to the earth is a biblical principle with profound spiritual implications. I love the idea of going back to where you belong, going back to your foundation, the idea of returning to the dust from which you came, Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, that's our lot in life here. And it's not just the physical remains that go back to where they belong. It's the spiritual remains as well. And I think this is an even more important point, 
that faithful people who live their lives in faith, who live their lives in trust, live their lives focused on God, on their spiritual responsibilities, they wind up in that same place. The labor and toil in the wilderness as we live here for our 40 years or three score and 10 or whatever biblical metaphor you want to use, that is investment that pays off in the end. We find a place of faith and hope because we invested in faith and hope. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and following says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. This idea of living your life in hope with this expectation that God is going to be giving us this thing that we have been hoping for, that's what gets us through. Life is difficult. Life is challenging. Life is fraught with inequities and hardships and pain. And at the end of it, we lose everything. That's the nature of it. But we have lived in hope and we have confidence that this life that we have invested in spiritual things, we will receive a return for that. And we'll receive that in heavenly realms. That's a, a glorious thing for us to contemplate as the people of God. And it's somewhat less glorious, obviously, to contemplate the counter to that, that people who live their lives in rebellion, people who live their lives in rejection of these concepts. They want a life that is separated from God. They want a life that is separated from morality, a lifestyle that embraces the things of this life, that rejects the things of God. That's the life they have invested in here, and that's the life that they're going to cash in on, essentially, at the end. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 talks about these ones who have lived in rebellion against God, who have rejected, who would not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will live in a godless state. You want a godless state for your three score and ten years? We'll go you one better. We'll give you a godless state in eternity. That's what God says. You want to retreat from God? That's the lifestyle that you get. If you want to live there, God says, we'll bury you there. And we don't mean that to sound cruel or, or mean-spirited. It's a matter of returning to your roots. It's a matter of finding the realization of who you always were in this life. If you are a person of God, you are buried in a relationship with God, you rise in a new relationship with God, a better, a fuller relationship with God. And the opposite of that is exactly the same. If we live our lives in rebellion against God, if we don't want God in our lives, we won't have God in our lives in eternity. The good news is you get to be buried where you want to be buried. You get to choose the lifestyle that you live and the death that you die. You can die in hopelessness and receive hopelessness, or you can die in hope and receive hope. Seems like an easy choice to make. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. This is what I've been playing. The game that I wanted to focus on this week is called At the Gates of Luoyang, a game designed by Uwe Rosenberg. In truth, any number of games would do just as well, probably including many games designed by Uwe Rosenberg. His most famous game is Agricola, and he has that game and several others that basically revolve around a farming, ranching-type motif. I don't know if he's just a frustrated farmer or what, but in this particular game, in At the Gates of Luoyang, you are a farmer in rural China, and you have a vegetable stand, and you have customers coming to you, and the idea is that you sell them the vegetables that you grow or are able to acquire in other ways, 
And in so doing, you grow your farm and you get bigger and bigger, and eventually you make more money than anybody else and you win the game. That's the idea, at least. The customers are going to ask a certain thing from you. Maybe it's beets or cabbage or leeks or pumpkins. Exactly how pumpkins got to feudal China is a little bit of a head-scratcher for me. But nevertheless, people want what they want. And if they don't receive it, they're going to get annoyed. And eventually, they're going to go away. And it's my reputation as this farmer in this game to maintain good relations, but ultimately to fill these orders. And there are a couple of different ways you can do that. You can take the vegetables that you have and give them to your customers. That's the obvious thing. They want this, and I have it, so I'll give them my radishes or my cabbage or whatever, and they'll go away satisfied. But the other way to do that is to take these vegetables that I have and let them go to seed. And take that seed and put the seed in the ground and grow an entire crop of vegetables, which takes a little bit of time. And it may annoy some of our customers. But in the end, I don't have one head of cabbage to get away or one clump of radishes. I have an entire crop, and I can feed multiple people and serve multiple customers. It's an investment in the future. I can use what I have right now to serve my immediate needs, or I can invest what I have right now to serve my future needs. If I invest it well, if I'm responsible, if I'm dutiful, I can do very well for myself. If I'm obsessed with doing what is right in the moment, I'm going to go bankrupt. I'm going to fail my customers. I'm going to fail in my business. I'm going to lose the game. I don't want to do that. Jesus, in his relationship with us, is asking us, to take what is most valuable to us and bury it, to put it in the ground and trust him that he is going to give the increase. That is a challenge for us, for us to give up what is the most valuable thing to us and trust that God is going to do something with this. Maybe it's a vice that we have to get rid of. Maybe it's our time, our energy, our money. Maybe it's our son, as was the case in Abraham's day. In Genesis chapter 22, we find out that Abraham was asked to give up the thing that was most special to him, that he wanted the most, that God had given him, given him for a purpose, promised to him for 25 years, and now you have to kill your son. How could that possibly be? Abraham didn't fully understand that, but he did understand that what God asks of me, that is what I'm going to do. If he wants me to bury my son, I will bury my son and trust that God is going to give the increase. We find out in Hebrews chapter 11 that he had faith that Isaac could be raised from the dead. Maybe that's how God would accomplish his plan. As it turns out, it was a different plan, a little little less painful for Abraham. In the short term, the angel stops his hand and says, no, now I know that you love me, that you're willing to give your only son. That is the kind of commitment that he asks from us. And if that sounds unreasonable, realize that that is exactly the commitment that God shows toward us. In giving his son, John 3.16, he is so committed to us that he will take his only begotten son and he will put him in the ground. He will do that for you and for me because what is coming on the other side of the grave is greater than anything that Jesus could have accomplished in this life. For Jesus to have a true effect, he could go around healing people and helping people in the short term and even forgiving people's sins in the short term. And what a marvelous thing that would be for the people then. But what if that had been all that he did? What if he never went to the cross? What if he died of a ripe old age in his bed, never having atoned for the sins of mankind? Where would you and I be in a situation like that? The only way that this could work 
is for God to give his son to die on the cross, to give him up completely and allow us to reap the long-term benefits of that. That's what he asks of us. He asks us to give up short-term blessings, short-term benefits, put them in the ground, get rid of them, and allow God to work something remarkable in us. Jesus has that opportunity at the cross. I don't doubt that his detractors there who said, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. If Jesus had, in fact, come down from the cross, I'm sure they'd have figured out a way to reject him anyway. But what an opening for Jesus that is. Here's an opportunity for me to win people to the Lord. I'll come down from the cross and they'll be saved anyway. No, it's not about what I want in the short term. And he always understood that throughout his ministry. He's always looking toward the greater thing. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. We see in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That's why we look to him to find that source of endurance, to find that hope, to find that purpose, the long-term objective that God sets out in front of us. If we are obsessing with how little we have in the moment, how few years we have in this life, how little money we have, surely this is about getting as much for myself as I possibly can. After all, I'm only going to be here for a while. God says exactly the opposite. You take all of those things, however much or however little it happens to be, you put it in the ground. You invest it in me, invest it in a relationship with me, and trust that I am there for you. Jesus offers us hope and assurance. If we will have enough faith to do this, he will work something great in us, far greater than we ever could have had for ourselves. In 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse number 3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Do you see all the death imagery, all the burial imagery? We are seeing partial returns even now. We have this hope that Jesus gives us. We believe that this is a good investment, the only investment for our life. This hope lives in us. And seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead and ascending to the throne of heaven, that gives us confidence that we also will be resurrected. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is telling us. This hope that we have is protected by the power of God. If we will give ourselves over to him, if we will allow ourselves to be born again to this living hope, if we give up the pursuits of this life in preference to the pursuits that he has called us to, We have confidence that he will work tremendous things in us. It may seem in the moment to be the last thing in the world you want to do. It's your only seed. It's your only piece of corn. It's your only vegetable. Surely eating it is the only thing that I could possibly do. But then after you've eaten it, it's gone. There's no future there. Jesus says, put it in the ground. Trust in me. Allow me to work something greater in you than you could ever work for yourself. Have the kind of faith to allow that to happen and watch God bring the increase in your life. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. 
If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.